Good morning. You know, last time I got to preach, I didn't have walk-up music, so that was kind of nice to go around. <laughs> anyway, we're going to be looking at Exodus chapters 1 and 2 today, uh, into chapter 1 and start of chapter 2, as we're going to be continuing on in our study of the book of Exodus. Mitch and Tim have already started us out by introducing us to this ancient Jewish timeline of where we're looking at. We know that these Jewish people are here in Egypt because of the protection and the sovereignty of God. He's used Joseph and his family in the midst of a famine to bring them out of Egypt so that the Israelite people could flourish. And they've done that. They have flourished and they have multiplied and they've grew exceedingly strong. And we've seen so far in this retelling of history that there is now war that is taking place. Not that is seen, but one that is unseen as the gods who are ruling over Egypt begin to oppress the Israelite nation. And we will see Yahweh as he begins to unfold his plans through the Israelites and the Egyptians as this war begins to take place. As Yahweh works to save his people so that he can save them for his namesake. This war that is taking place, we will get to see uh, unfold with Moses as Yahweh is going to use Moses as a redeemer. And we're going to see this morning how promises that were made in Genesis are going to continue to unfold today and remain true here in Exodus. As we begin to read into this retelling of history, though, there are a few things that I want us to keep in mind. Pharaoh, during this time, who goes unnamed here, Tim pointed this out last week, who goes unnamed here in, in the account of Exodus... It, which to me is kind of funny and ironic because as we learn more and more about the Egyptian culture, we realize and we, we have learned that the pharaohs during this culture wanted their names to be remembered for forever. That's why they built the, their, these monuments, these memorials, all of these things so that they could be remembered for all of time. And I believe for, for Pharaoh to go unnamed here in this account is, is kind of a twofold point that is being made. It, it's in part to take that glory away from Pharaoh that he sought after but it was also to show that Pharaoh is not who Yahweh is at war with. Pharaoh in this culture and during this time was seen to be a descendant of their God. He was seen just as much of a God to the Egyptians as they saw the rest of their gods. And whenever we see depictions of Pharaoh, whenever we see depictions and we find these caskets that these Pharaohs were buried in, they were always seen with a crown with a serpent on their head. Which to me, as we begin to see uh, Pharaoh begin to oppress over the people of Israel, it takes me back to Genesis 3.15, where God said, I will make enemies between the offspring of the snake, the enemy, and between the offspring of the woman. With Egypt, though, we can't forget how God used Egypt to save the Israelite people. Back in Genesis, Egypt was the means that Yahweh used to save them from the famine. Egypt was the vessel that Yahweh used to uh, mature, multiply and mature his infant nation into a nation that the greatest powerhouse in the world came to be feared and intimidated by. But that intimidation wasn't because of a military power or even a strength's power. It, it, yes, they grew large within Egypt. They grew very, very, very large. But the real reason why they were oppressed... Why Egypt and the powers that were over the Egyptian nation were intimidated to the point of oppression was because of who was on their side. It wasn't because of the power that they held, but because of the power and of the strength of whose they were. That was the difference, and that's what we're going to start at today. We start with seeing Israel as being the nation that was set apart for the Lord within a nation whose hearts are bowing at the feet of these other gods. So starting in verse 22 of chapter 1, um, it reads, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who was born you were to throw into the Nile, 
but every daughter you were to keep alive. So here, here we have the beginning of this war that is taking place. Last week, Tim set us up and showed us these midwives who feared the Lord and wouldn't follow through Pharaoh's orders to kill the sons of the Hebrews as they were being born. And when the midwives wouldn't follow through with these orders, Pharaoh said, fine, I'll do this myself. And he issued a decree to all of the nation and said that every son that is born, they're to be thrown into the Nile. And keep this in mind. So the Nile in this culture was seen a God in and of itself. It was and still is a vast and powerful river that was teeming with terrible deadly creatures of crocodiles and hippos. This act of casting into the Nile in some form or another was seen as sacrificing to their God, to this God of the Nile. And it shifted the blame for them in one sense or another. But that word that we have translated into throw here in the NASB and the CSB, and it's translated as cast in the ESV, is the word salak. And don't quote me on my Hebrew, like, verbiage, because I don't know what I'm saying, but whichever, whenever that word is translated elsewhere in the Bible, it's translated a little bit differently, and I think it helps to see the, the way that it's also being used here when we look at that. So, for instance, in Genesis 21:15, when Hagar and Ishmael are wandering in the wilderness, Hagar is, is wandering through the wilderness, and it says, when she put the, when the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. That word in Genesis 21, 15, for she put or she left, is the same word that we have here in Exodus 1, 22. So, and from this context and other places in Scripture, what we can kind of glean from what Pharaoh isn't intentionally saying is that they are to abandon or to leave or to expose these children at or in the Nile and for these children to be left in or at their own grave to die. It's heartbreaking to read and to understand the weight and the pressure of what is going on here in this moment, to see this war that is breaking out, and the one who is paying the cost of it the most are these innocent babies. But God is going to set into motion his plan of redemption now as we move into chapter 2. And we will start to see how God is going to use these things that are being used for evil and make use of them as his vessels for righteousness. So chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. Okay, so let's pause here for a second. So here in the account of Exodus, Moses' parents go unnamed. We learn later on in Exodus 6, 20, and in Numbers 26, that their names were Amram and Jochebed. So and from what we can understand from chapter 6 specifically, their marriage was kind of an interesting one. Jochebed, from what we can read in chapter 6, was Amram's aunt. It says that she was his father's sister. And one of the really fascinating things about this story is, you know, the, the first time that I read this through, especially growing up, I always thought that this was some young couple that was passionately in love and then came to bore the son Moses. It turns out that Jochebed was about 130 years old when she gave birth to Moses. Sarah, Abraham's wife, was 90 when she laughed at the thought of having birth, giving birth to a son, only to later give birth to Isaac. Jochebed up here is 130 when she gives birth to Moses, which I think is a miracle in and of itself and adds a totally different level and weight to the story as we're reading through it. So this woman, Jochebed, she gives birth to a son, and she sees that he is beautiful, that he is good, and then she hides him away. Why does she hide him? I understand that Pharaoh has this decree out, like all the sons are to be killed, but is she hiding out of fear, is my question. Hebrews eleven twenty three says this, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. 
Moses' parents didn't hide in fear. They hid him in an act of faith in hopes that Yahweh would watch over this child, that he would be the one who would deliver this child. And we can watch as this faith of theirs continues to play out in verse 3. It says, But when she could no longer hide him, she got him a papyrus basket and covered it with tar and pitch. And she put, she put the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. So when she could no longer hide him, which was probably about three months old at that point, she went and fastened him a basket made out of papyrus and covered it with tar and pitch. And so we tend to miss this connection in our English translations, but to the ancient Israelites, they would have keyed right into what is going on here in this moment. So the word that we have here for basket in this word is tabah. That word is only used in one other place in the entirety of Scripture, and it's used to describe the ark that Noah built in Genesis chapters 6 through 9. Noah's ark was also sealed on the outside of it, inside and out of it, was with pitch. Genesis 6.14, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with compartments and cover it inside and out with pitch. So we get to see this immediate connection to what is going on here. In the same way that God used Noah and the ark, how he sent a redeemer on the water, we see God working and showing that this is what this baby will be a redeemer that will be the one to bring up and to save God's people. Tony Marita says that just as God's hand of grace was on Noah, a deliverer, bringing salvation, so it was with the deliverer Moses. Two individuals, both major role players in God's redemption, are saved from certain death of drowning by finding salvation inside of a tabah, a basket, a boat, an ark. We have this deliverer who is sent on the water, he is placed in the midst of uncertainty. He is placed in the waters of dangers, placed there not out of fear, but out of an act of faith. And look at how this faith is responded to. It says, Then she put the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. And his sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. So keep this in mind, too, as we're reading this. We don't exactly know where she put him in the river, okay? So keep that in mind. Verse 5, Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her female attendants walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave woman, and she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying, and she had pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. So you have to wonder in this moment, when this mother places this basket in the river, was it just at any point in the river? You got to remember, this, this river is intense. It's massive, crocodile-infested. Or did she place this ark in a place in the river where she has seen this princess come down to bathe frequently before? Because just as Victor Hamilton says, trust in Pharaoh's daughter and trust in, Fer and trust in God are not mutually exclusive. And if what he says is, is true, then what David Gunn says is also correct in saying that Jochebed places the fate of their baby at the feet of Pharaoh's daughter somehow trusting that this young woman could never carry through the brutal policy of her father. This is a desperate commitment of this child into God's hands when all of her resources are at an end. We have, so we have this princess, this daughter of Pharaoh, who is there at the river to bathe. We don't know if it's for hygiene reasons or religious reasons. It's not told to us in this account because it's not important to us as we're reading through this. But she is there in the river, and she spots this basket in the reeds and has one of her servants go to retrieve it. Now, in the NASB and the ESV, it's translated that she took pity on. 
And, and so I prefer the translation of took compassion on. And I'm going to let Victor Hamilton explain it because I couldn't say it any better than he did. He says, one difference between pity and compassion is that pity means to feel for, while compassion means to feel with. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, the priest and the Levite have pity but no compassion. They feel sorry for the victim, but it stops there. Not so with the Samaritan and not so with this princess. She does not simply feel a brief tinge of sorrow and then go on with her bathing. The compassion that we see here from this Egyptian woman is a reminder for us that the Exodus was not just for the Jews. Ultimately, it was for the salvation of the whole world, including the Egyptians. So we have Pharaoh's daughter, who has just now drew this baby out of the water, and it just so happened that this baby's sister, Miriam, is standing nearby to keep watch on him. We don't know if, if she was tasked with watching her brother or if she was just curious to see what would happen to him. But as soon as she sees Pharaoh's daughter bring him up out of the water, bring Moses out, she emerges herself and asks a question. She says, Shall I go and call a woman for you who is nursing from the Hebrew woman so that they may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Then the Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. So let me ask you this question. If you guys are just out and about one day, and you just found something totally out of place, like it doesn't have to be like a baby out in the Ustanala, but like let's say you're out walking around Barrie, and you're out walking through one of their fields, and you come across a boat. Like, okay, that probably doesn't fit there. I wonder what's going on. So go check it out. You're looking at it. Yep, it's a boat in the middle of a field. That's kind of weird, random. But all right, all of a sudden, this random guy pops up out of nowhere. He's like, hey, I see you found a boat. Guess what? I fix boats. You want me to fix this boat for you? First of all, please get away from me. I don't know who you are. Secondly, this is weird, but like you've got something to do with this, right? Like this is so weird and random that you would just be here. And I know this is a silly illustration, but so many commentators and teachers paint this story to look like the daughter here in this story is just naive or stupid and doesn't see what's going on here. They make it look like she is conned into surrendering this child back into his own mother's hands so that she can nurse him. But do we really think that this affluential noble of Egypt wouldn't have picked up what's going on here? David Gunn says, is she so simple to think that this young Hebrew girl's appearance is coincidental? Is she so slow to be able to connect the woman who instantly materializes, who is able to nurse with the child's mother? She sees that connection and yet still gives this child to his mother. Tells her, go, take care of this baby, and I will pay you for it. And she does. She takes this baby. Jochebed takes her baby home, but she just recently acted in faith by laying this baby in the river in disobedience to Pharaoh and obedience to Yahweh is now getting to take her son back home. Jochebed's actions here are a really cool and ironic reversal of Abraham from Genesis 22. Abraham, who had been given the son who, had been all, who, who, had, who he had always been promised, was ordered to kill Isaac, and yet Isaac was spared. Jochebed disobeys Pharaoh to, in Pharaoh's order to kill Moses, and yet Moses is spared. In one, instant, in one incident, God honors obedience, and the other he honors defiance. So now this mother, this faithful mother, gets to bring her son back home. Even if it's just for a short time, it's a time that she will get to cherish for forever. In this moment, I'm sure that Miriam, Moses' sister, believed that she was helping her mother more than anybody else in the world. 
But it wasn't for Jochebed's benefit. It was all for Moses. See, it was all part of God's plan to save his people. To grow up a son, a savior, whose personal identity had been shaped by the years that he had with his mother. Moses had the opportunity to bond with his mother and to receive that basic spiritual instruction from her. And I'm sure it didn't feel like it was enough time. And I'm, but I'm sure that she prayed for her son to be a man who feared God and loved God's people. Her prayers were answered. For Moses, he would never forget the lessons that he learned. He was living proof of Proverbs 22.6. Train a child in, a way that, in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. Moses would always be Jochebed's son. But when he was fully weaned, he was adopted into Pharaoh's household. And yet, even in the midst of Pharaoh's house, God was working there too. Verse 10. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, Because I drew him out of the water. See, Moses did not grow up as a slave, but as a son. Safe and secure in Pharaoh's house. From there, he would be educated. He would grow in both wisdom and stature. We see from Acts 7.22 that he would be educated in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was trained in some of the finest knowledge in the world. He was trained in linguistics, mathematics, astronomy, architecture, music, medicine, law, diplomacy. He was trained with every tool that he needed. He was given every tool that he needed by the very people that, that he was going to overthrow. Exodus 11.3 says that Moses came to be highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. There was divine purpose in his education. God was preparing him to lead. He was preparing him to lead his people out of, his, out of Egypt. Romans 8.28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Moses' birth is that perfect example of God working out salvation down to the very last detail. So many years later, as Stephen would be recounting the story in front of the Sanhedrin, he would include all of these details in Acts chapter 7. It says, But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At, the at this time Moses was born, he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. None of these things would have happened without God overruling Pharaoh's deadly decree. All of these things happened according to the providence of God in order for him to accomplish his plan of salvation. God saved the child Moses so that he could save the children of Israel. Pharaoh's daughter at the end of verse 10 says that she named Moses because she drew him out of the water. And now you can go find tons of debate around why he is named what he is, but here is what I want you to glean from this. Moses was given a Hebrew name from an Egyptian princess. She named him Moses because she drew him out of the water. All throughout Scripture, to the ancient Israelites, the water was where evil things were. In Revelation, we have all these pictures of dragons and these evil things coming out and being cast into the water. In Genesis 1, we have the imagery of the Spirit of God hovering over the waters as he brings chaos into submission. To the ancient Israelites, 
so many different places throughout their scripture, they saw that the water was where the things were that they feared. That's where evil was. Moses' name to draw out of the water, it was a fitting name for the one who would draw God's people from the waters of Egypt. From the evil of these lesser gods who were oppressing over Yahweh's people. Moses was going to be the one who would split seas, who would sit and speak face to face with the creator and the sustainer of the universe. Moses was a savior. He was a savior who came and lived and walked among his people. And he walked with the Lord very, very well. He brought and showed us so much from his life that we can look at. He was a savior, but he was not the savior. Long after the Exodus, the Israelites were still waiting for another Savior to be born. Moses and so many others had shown them what he would look like. But Israel was longing for it. Deuteronomy 34 says, And there has not arisen a prophet since an Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. And for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all of Israel. Then a child would be born in a small town of Bethlehem. Who would have so many parallels in his life to Moses. He would be born a savior and would be rescued from an evil ruler at birth. He would live in Egypt, grew in both wisdom and knowledge before coming into the public's eye. He would be tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, just as Moses and the Israelites would wander for 40 years in the wilderness. He would go and speak from the high mountains and preach to us the truth of the law in the same way that he gave Moses the law on top of Mount Sinai. Jesus is that Savior. Moses was just a model. Jesus was and is that perfect Savior that we needed and waited for. He lived a perfect life until he died an atoning death for our sins. In his death is our salvation. The cross is the ultimate triumph over evil. Tony Marita says, God takes a place of death and turns it into a place of life and salvation. Think about Noah and the flood, Jonah and the sea and the fish. Jesus' tomb becomes a place of life. All these stories point to God's divine power to take death to life. And so so here's what I'm going to do. Before we move into our application section, I'm going to read everything that we've talked about so far. Exodus 122 to uh, chapter 2 verse 10. But I just want you to listen to it and I want you to keep in mind everything that we've talked about up until this point. Just listen to it. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people saying every son who is born you are to throw into the Nile but every daughter you are to keep alive. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi and the woman conceived and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got him a papyrus basket and covered it with tar and pitch. Then she put the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. And his sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her female attendants walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave woman, and she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying. And she had pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a woman for you who is nursing from the Hebrew women, so that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. 
And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses and said, Because I drew him out of the water. When we take into account everything that we've looked at so far, doesn't the story now read totally different? Once we stop and we look at this text for what it says, we start to read, and it just feels different to us. Once we begin to shut off those lenses that we have over our eyes, we start to see the weight that is behind Scripture. And here's the challenge that I want to make to you this morning. Come to the text open to it, not closed off by what you know about it. See, to me, when I was growing up, this section was a supporting section. It was the intro to the main story that was coming down the road. I let culture and cartoons shift and warp my theology. I only ever saw the shallowness of this text, that it was luck that the baby ended up where he did, that the princess was deceived into giving this child back to his mother because she wasn't very smart, that there was never a reason besides protection for Moses to end up and to grow up in the house of Pharaoh. I never read the text for what it actually said. I came to the text with that puffed up chest thinking I already knew what it said. When we stop reading the text from what culture has laid over our eyes, and we start to read the text for the value and the weight of what it says, we begin to see the full picture that has been laid out in front of us. We get to see God's sovereign plan in the details as he works it out to the smallest moments. It's used to equip us in the same way that Moses was equipped for his task at hand. Except we have the living, breathing Word of God. This Word is alive, and it moves in the souls that will allow it to. When we come to the text, we have to be willing to read the Scriptures while also allowing the Scriptures to read us. For it to peer into the deepest, darkest corners of our hearts to expose those places that we have clinged onto so tightly so that Christ can shine a light on it and expose it. From this text, too, I believe that there's a couple ways that we, we need to respond to it. And the first of which is that we need to respond in an act of faithfulness to the circumstances that we have in front of us. We have to go and look at the moments of doubt that we experience, those moments that are hard and heavy in our lives, and even in those moments of joy and peace. We have to respond faithfully to what is in front of us and place our hope and trust at the feet of Christ. This, too, isn't just placing things at the feet of Christ, walking away, wiping our hands clean, and being passive about it, because God will take care of it. This is an active response of faith that we have to have to the Lord, knowing that the Lord will work it for good, but we have to be in tune with the Holy Spirit, in tune through His Word, through prayer, through study, so that these moments of uncertainty and doubt and hardship— when they come, when those pressures bear down on us in ways that we don't understand, we don't have to feel trapped in a corner and let our instincts take over. Instead, we have an inner joy and peace and confidence knowing that Christ, who died and bore my sins, is still working all things out through his sovereignty. In that, we respond in action. Taking the step forward, laying the right things down in the sovereign timing of the Lord— Walking in step with the Spirit, responding in the same way that Jochebed responded in faith. Not by laying back and worrying and being fearful, but by placing her child, her baby boy, at the feet of Yahweh, knowing that He will provide the means for this child. To do that, we have to surrender control of our lives. We have to surrender control of our lives to Christ. We have to trust in Him that the work that He did on the cross was sufficient. That the curse of sin no longer dictates our lives, even though we are still surrounded by it and influenced by it, it has no control over us. 
When we give our lives to Christ, we say, Jesus, you are the one who is in control now, and I trust you with everything that I have. I give it all to you because I know that you are going to alter history for your people. We have to read the word daily. Respond in prayer and worship. The word is the guide to our hearts, the lamppost to our feet. Without it, we're just walking through the dark, not knowing where to go. We have to pursue, pursue maturity. We have to not just study the word, but memorize it, know it, have it written on our hearts. And then we have to respond in worship. As I was reading through the book of Revelation recently in, in the reading plan, it was stark to me as I was reading through this year that no matter what was going on, no matter the chaos and the destruction that was being laid out on the earth, the angels and the elders that were there witnessing it were constantly on their face in worship to Yahweh. In Isaiah chapter 1, as Isaiah gets to peer into the throne room of God, as he sees God's mercy and majesty on display, he sees the train of his robe filling the entirety of the room. It's, it's God's majesty on display. Isaiah's only response as he came to that was to fall on his face in worship. Here's what, here's what we're going to do. The band is going to come on up, and we're going to pray, and then we're going to worship. But here's what I want you to do. Don't just sing a song right now. Don't just sing a song. Allow your soul to cry out and long for its creator. Give praise today to the only one who deserves it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for your son Jesus who came and died on the cross for our sins. Lord, we know that, that in us, for those of us who have given our lives to you, that, that your Holy Spirit resides inside of us. That only through you that we can respond in this act of faithfulness. And Lord, I pray that as we lean into you, that we respond in faith. Lord, receive our worship today. Let our souls cry out to you. For we love you, Lord. Amen.